Good morning, Tabernacle. Uh, we're glad that you're here. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors, uh, both here in Buckley, those of you that are watching uh, at home online, those of you in Manistee, especially at our Manistee campus, um, we welcome you on this Father's Day. And we salute the fathers. Um, we also realize, I, I try to remember to say this, is not everyone of us had the greatest father. I did. I had the greatest father on the planet. But not everyone had the same experience. But by God's grace, we can all celebrate a heavenly father who's perfect. Can we not? So uh, it's Father's Day, and uh, when it's our Heavenly Father, it's His day every day. So uh, you picked a great weekend to join us. Uh, We're starting the second half of our series through Samuel. Uh, We finished up 1 Samuel last week, and since it's one big epic story, we're going to continue with it. Uh, You got to see the uh, brand new video, the new intro video. Was that pretty cool? Did we like that? Of course we have to change it. We can't go an entire year like that. You know, this is not the days of Little House on the Prairie. We can update things just a little bit. But uh, um, you'll see that there is a shift because now we move from um, basically the kingdom of Saul has ended. Where we're at in the story is Saul has died on Mount Gilboa. And the Lord's anointed king to take his spot, David, uh, Today is going to receive the news. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 1. While you're turning there, if if you've ever wondered, why is it at the tabernacle, they just kind of go through these books of the Bible, and especially books that are 3,000 years old. Why can't John just uh, pick a different topic that's interesting and helpful and give me five rules to make my life better every week? Well, for one reason, we're not a crap church, so... um, (laughs) Sorry, did I just say that out loud? (laughs) What I mean by that is, you don't want me to come up with just what I want to preach about, right? And to be honest, I don't have the rules from a human standpoint of how to make it better. Scripture told us we're supposed to preach the word. And so what we try to do is go through the books of the Bible. And and by doing so, God's word comes alive. It says that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for us. Every bit of it. That's why we say things like uh, there's no wasted words in scripture. Secondly, when we go through books of the Bible together, we learn how to study it for ourselves. So I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. What I'm trying to say is I'm not going to bring some humanistic teachings and then go find some verses to sprinkle on top of them. We're going to go through the hard stuff together. And it gets a little bit hard, right? And so here we are. We're in 2 Samuel um, chapter 1. And uh, we'll start in verse 1. It says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. 
And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So let's pause right there. We don't know a lot about this guy, this Amalekite, but uh, because we've read 1 Samuel, um, the author is showing us that this guy is a liar. So there's some people that have tried to look at the end of 1 Samuel where it says that, yes, part of his story was true. Israel was losing the battle on Mount Gilboa. Saul was wounded and Saul did ask someone to kill him, but he asked his armor bearer to do it. And if you remember, and it, you know, his armor bearer would be his aide de camp, would be one of his closest servants. And his armor bearer, for fear of the Lord and for fear of touching the Lord's anointed, wouldn't do it. He refused. And at the end of 1 Samuel, we see Saul fell on his own sword rather than fall into enemy hands. It was better to do that than to face the mistreatment that the Philistines would have put him through. So he fell on his own sword and his armor bearer, who we assume was also wounded, also did the same for himself. So we know that this guy is a liar. This guy is only telling half of the truth and he's brought uh, uh, the king's crown and his armlet. And uh, we don't, is he a treasure hunter? Is he trying to get in good with David? You see, everyone knows about the David-Saul saga. And so he's thinking, you know what? If I show up and bring him the good news that now his rival is dead, maybe I'll get a reward, right? And so this is the Amalekite. Verse 11, we look at David's response. It says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, this is a remarkable response. Would you agree? I mean, after all that we've been through. Right With all the attempts on David's life by Saul, how many spears did he have to dodge? He's been living in virtual exile for almost a decade. And when he hears of this great defeat of God's people, this great defeat of the army, the great defeat of his friends, of his best friend Jonathan, and this rival king Saul, he tears his clothes and he mourns and he laments And they don't eat anything. He and his entire army. What's even more surprising, you would think, at least from our 2021 perspective, is that then he calls this Amalekite back and he says, why is it that you thought it was okay that you could touch the Lord's anointed? Kill him. This isn't good news for David. You think, but man... Get Saul out of there and get David in so we can get to the, you know, 
happy ever after. That's not David's perspective. He had such high regard for the fact that Saul had been God's chosen and that it was in God's hands. And for his almost closer than a brother, Jonathan, that instead he mourns. And this guy, even though David doesn't know that he's a liar, the very fact that he'd reached out his hand to end the life of Saul, he had him put to death. It's not anger. There's a righteousness to it. We go on in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. So a lamentation is like a poem. Remember, David wasn't just a warrior. He was a poet. He was a song leader. He was, he was, he, he was a soldier and a creative arts director. And so he writes a poem of lamentation to grieve over Saul and Jonathan. It says, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you. Nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul. Not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain. From the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned not back. And the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. That's a lamentation. That expresses lament, sadness, sorrow, grief. And I don't think it was contrived, I don't think it was fake. I don't think David's thinking politically now. Everyone knows that Saul's been trying to kill David. In fact, I think there are some places in his heart where David really loved Saul. Remember the good times before the spears started being chucked at his head? He was Saul's armor bearer. He was that close. Jonathan and he made covenants together, closer than brothers. These were men that he'd fought with. Not against, but he'd fought with them. These were his people. There's genuine sadness here in this lamentation about how the mighty have fallen. It says in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. And I I have to mention this, and it almost makes me sad that I have to, but... Our perverted minds in 2021 want to try to take our present day issues and insert them in things. And so people get tripped up about his words in verse 26 when he says, I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Don't pervert that with what you think that means. 
That's how a man is supposed to tell another man in a non-sexual, non-romantic way that I love you like a brother. That's why it says my brother Jonathan. Another way to translate that has been your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the friendship of women. And this is not what this sermon is about today, but I, I think I have to say it. Many of us as men, we are stunted in our relationships with other men. Maybe it's because we didn't get the love of a father. Maybe it's because we never heard him say, I love you or I'm proud of you. That we don't know how as men of God to look one another in the eye and say, I love you. And have it not be weird. Hey bro, step back. Get over yourself, Northern Michigan. If you're a father here today and you've never told your son that you love him, he's never heard you say the words, it's not too late. A boy needs to hear that. A man needs to hear that. He needs to hear that from his father. And Jonathan is lost. He lies slain on the mountaintop and so does Saul. And that's why this sermon is titled Lament. There's genuine grief. Happy Father's Day. I want to start by saying that Grief in regards to death or lament in regards to death is biblical. It's biblical. Part of the calling that I'm under in in this job is I've had to do more than my fair share of funerals. We saw one of our own. We had a funeral for just this past Thursday, beloved member of our church. And many times when you're at a funeral, especially when it's of a Christian, some well-meaning soul will come in and say, oh, nobody be sad. Don't be sad. You don't have to be sad. They're a Christian. They're with Jesus. It's all good. And, and even though that's a, that's a true thing to say, that's only half true because biblical sadness over death, I mean, that's a right thing. You see... Death wasn't a part of the original program when God created the heavens and the earth and called them all good. Death wasn't a part of it. There was no sin. There was no evil. There was no death. Our first parents were were instructed in the garden that they could eat from any of the trees, including the tree of life, which would perpetuate them forever and ever and ever. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were not to touch or they were not to eat of that tree lest they would surely die. And of course, they believed the lie and they ate from that tree. And so the curse of death came upon them and it came upon all of us. Now, they didn't drop dead immediately. That's not how the story goes. But that's why that there's death. And so when I say that grief and lament, it's a good thing to grieve when someone dies. It's because that grief and that lament reminds us of the curse that we're all under. It reminds us to fear the Lord. It reminds us of our human condition. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons God allowed it. You know, whenever you go to a funeral, you're reminded that the clock is ticking. You're not guaranteed another breath. You're not guaranteed another year or decade. So when we are sad like David over death, that's a good thing. We can have hope. We can have hope. But this sermon needs to get darker before it can get better. Here's a couple other observations. The first thing that I see here is that 
in the examples from this story is that there is sin and this sin is a choice. This sin is a choice. Sin is always a choice. And the reason I have to say this is, well, well, first of all, so we see in Saul, Saul had chosen a direction for his life. He had chosen not to fully obey God. He had chosen the way of jealousy and anger and unforgiveness and rage towards David. To spite David and to try to kill him. That was a sin choice that Saul made. But the Amalekite also chose sin. He chose to come and make up a story. Was it out of greed? Was, it, was he, uh, uh, as the scholars say, I was reading this this week, maybe he was some sort of sycophant. In northern Michigan, we say kiss up. Right? I hope they're awake in Manistee. Because like Buckley's like, what? Well, come on, I just said kiss up in a sermon. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get in good with David. Hey, that guy was trying to kill you. I brought his, I brought his crown. I brought his singlet. I killed him, right? He chose that sin. We live in an age of blame. And that's not really new either. Our first parents tried to blame. Adam blamed Eve and God. Eve blamed the devil and how shiny the fruit was. And some of us, we like to make excuses for our sin by saying, well, it's the family I'm from. It's the way I was raised. You've heard me go off on this before. For some of us, it's, well, I was born this way. I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but I need to say this very clearly. We were all born away. We all inherited the sin gene, regardless of what the sin is. Is it a propensity to steal? Is it a propensity to lie? Is it a propensity towards addiction? Is it a propensity towards sexual sin? We're all born away. Nobody gets a pass. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of our first parents, we're all born in sin. That's our condition. But we all know deep in our hearts that we also choose to sin. We also choose to sin. So I may be born a way, but it doesn't mean I have to act on it. When I choose to act on it, I become culpable. And sin is a choice. Saul chose his way. The Amalekite chose his way. It's interesting what David chose in this moment. You know, I would think that if I was David, there would be a part of me that would be like, yes, finally. All right, let's go. We're moving out of Ziklag, get the U-Hauls. We're going to Hebron. It's on. Bring all my wives. I don't know where that came from. But he was already collecting them. I don't know what that was about. But that's not what David does. He laments. He chooses the way of honor, the way of grief, the way of sadness in this moment. He's genuinely sad over the defeat and sin is a defeat. He's genuinely sad over death. And it wasn't just Saul that died, but Jonathan and and all those soldiers. It was a huge defeat, right? So just like sin is a choice, righteousness is also a choice. You're going to find out later that all of Israel was pleased with David's response. And this isn't even until after the fact. After word got out, after the news got out. But for you and me, sin is also a choice. So every single one of us is culpable. We don't get to blame anyone else. 
Wives, you don't get to blame your husband. Husband, you don't get to blame your wife. Well, if she was more like that, then I wouldn't do that. And we don't get to blame our kids. If I wasn't surrounded by all of these kids that she wanted to have, then I would be a better father. I would drink less. We blame so much. And we're all guilty. Myself included. It says in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, surely your sin will find you out. So sin is a choice, but sin will find you out. Now, I've heard that my whole life. I'm a child of the Christian ghetto. So when I heard, surely your sin will find you out. Do you you know what I thought that meant? I thought that meant that whatever your sins are, everybody's going to eventually know about them. That was scary, right? But as I'm 51 years old, uh, you know what I've discovered? Not necessarily. I don't think that's exactly what that verse means. Because there are some sins that people carry all the way to their graves. And left me brutally disappointed. When it says in the book of Numbers verse 32. That your sin will find you out. Literally it says your sin will discover you. Your sin will reveal you. Or it will be revealed. It's very similar to when it says in scripture. That what you sow. You will also reap. It means that there are consequences to sin. Some of us, it isn't the overt sin that will find us out. Maybe we didn't kill anybody, you know, didn't have an affair or, you know, I mean, we think of the big, whatever the big bad ones are. And sometimes I wonder if the big bad ones aren't a little more forgiving than the little secrets that we keep in our hearts. Those little places of unforgiveness, those little places of hatred, those little places of not reconciling to our brothers or bitterness or cynicism. And we carry those. And then they have a ripple effect onto our children at our job. You know, that little bad attitude that you've carried at work for 20 years. And then when it came time between you and happy-go-lucky guy, happy-go-lucky guy got the raise and you didn't. You guess what? Your sin discovered you. Your sin of just being a stick in the mud that no one likes to be around. Is that silly? Is, it, is that a silly example? It's a truth. Some of us, we get in these ruts like Saul did. Saul was in a rut of of halfway obeying God and not fully, not being a man after God's own heart, which doesn't mean a perfect man. We're going to find out there's plenty of David's imperfections to go around. But Saul chose this road and he dies a 70-year-old man in humiliation. And I believe his own sin cost the lives of his sons. When God said to Saul, I have torn the kingdom from you and I'll give it to another. Jonathan's future was determined in that moment. Your sin will discover you. There will be consequences. There'll be a reaping. If you sow bitterness, you'll reap it. You sow hatred, you'll reap it. You sow racism, you'll reap it. Even the little kind that isn't using the naughty words. We reap what we sow. And this is important because if anything, this chapter is a reminder for all of us that sin leads to death. 
Sin leads to death. That's the ending. That's the end road. That's the end game. God promised it to our first parents. That the moment you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I will cut you off from the tree of life. And now all of us live under the curse. So many people miss that. You know, it says that in the first book of the Bible, that we were banished from the tree of life. A tree that when you eat from it, you live forever. Oh, that's just a fable. Oh, that's just myth. Really? Because if you believe all the Bible, it says in the book of Revelation, do you know what will be at the center of the new Jerusalem? A tree. A tree. Tree of life. But our sin leads us to death. It's a curse we all live under. My sin. Your sin. And you say, why? (laughs) Couldn't God just chill out? He can't. Addison Lech put it this way. He said, when the will of God crosses the will of man... Somebody has to die. When the will of God crosses the will of man, somebody has to die. You see, the only thing that will pay for sin is blood. And when my will crosses God's will, blood is required of someone. And the story of the universe, the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel, is that every single one of us our will will continually cross the will of God. And someone has to die. And it's either going to be me or it's going to be Jesus. And that's where the sermon turns. That's where we get to the good news. That there's a better king than Saul. One that always chose righteousness and never chose sin. That there's a better king than David who was the king after God's own heart, but God himself was Jesus in the flesh and my sin led to his death. For God so loved the world, see so much that he loved me and love you that he chose to die so that I didn't have to. Do you guys believe that? That's how sin leads to death. It can either lead to my eternal death and separation from God or it leads me to the cross. It leads me to the cross where God in flesh willingly laid down his life so you and I could have our sins paid for. And this isn't just some cockamamie scheme. This is the way that it has to be. It says in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 that God forever in his presence, you have these these angelic beings. They're called a seraphim. By the way, those of you that doodle in church, doodle me up a seraphim, right? Because apparently they have six sets of eyes and they got six wings and they're always floating around, you know, with God and they're singing and crying out. They got, check this out, two wings cover their eyes because you can't look at God and two of their wings cover their feet because they're dirty. And then with two wings, they stay. You guys with me? Look it up. It's in Isaiah 6. Bible said it. I believe it. So good on you, mate. So whatever, right? So it says that forever and ever and ever, these seraphim go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy. For, that's all they do. They're there just to remind us all the time that God is holy. He is holy. He is holy. Do you know what that means? He's completely other than us. 
Why is this important? Why is it important that sin leads to death and God is holy? Because God is holy, just the smallest bit of sin in me or in you condemns us to death. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why someone had to die. Because it's an insult. It's an affront to God's holiness. We don't have a clue how holy God is. We talk about it. We sing about it. We don't really care as much as we say about it. But that's why we stand in fear of God. That's why sin has to lead to death. And it's either going to be your death or the death of Jesus. It's a big deal, the holiness of God. And when I believe in Jesus' death on the cross, I can put to death sin in my life. Isn't that interesting how that goes? It's my sin... That has me on the death train. It's Jesus' death that gets me off the death train. And when I believe it by faith and receive God's grace, now I can put sin to death in my life. That gives me permission to say no, even though I'm born a certain way, even though my family of origin makes me act this way, even though the circumstances in my life seem to push me towards sin. I don't have to. This is good news. I think I'm a little too worked up. Can, can you talk about fathers and, fi- and five ways we can be all good dads? No! Hallmark doesn't determine what we're preaching about. We're talking about sin. Happy Father's Day. I love you. Sin leads to death, but there's even better news. In Romans chapter 6, it puts it this way. One of the first verses I ever had to memorize. Romans 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a good verse? Hey, if you're not an underliner, you need to be. Maybe a highlighter. That'd be a good tattoo. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was probably eight or nine years old, a little missionary kid in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And, you know, we always had to be in church because we were holiness people. Some of you got that, right? So I'd be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday school, and then we went on Sunday night. And Sunday night, it's like, all right, we were already here. Why do we have to come back? We had to come back to get part two or the recap or a little more holy. And I remember one Sunday night, I was so excited because they'd set up a reel-to-reel movie, and there was a projector. It's movie night at church. Nobody else is fired up about that? If you're a kid here and you're like, can we have movie night on Sunday? Shut up. <laughs> but that was me. It was movie night. And we watched Pilgrim's Progress. And, and, you know, it's this classic allegory of the Christian life. And I'm sure if I saw it in 2021, it would be cheesy. Because it was over 40 years ago. Because I'm 51, right? I can't remember. Eight, nine, or ten years old. There's one part of this movie that really impacted me. See, Pilgrim, he represents the Christian. He's, he's going through the slough of despair and the valley of the shadow of death, and he's carrying this sin backpack, right? All the bad stuff that he'd ever done and all the bad stuff that had ever been done to him and the fact that he was a sinner, and that's us. He's carrying this huge burden, and as he's walking, he's just tired, and he's like this, and there's this one part of the movie that I can still remember. It haunts me to this day. You'd hear the narrator as he's walking, you know, this dude would go, the wages of sin is death, is death. The wages of sin is death. Still gives me shivers. It's just dark and he's got the backpack and it's heavy. Wages of sin is death, is death. The wages of sin is death. 
I got saved like four times in that movie. I was just like, Jesus, I give me a lightning bolt or something. Give me a sign. I don't want to carry the sin backpack. I don't want to die, right? This is this verse. The wages of sin is death. That's where it leads us to. And all of us are going to die. But we don't have to stay dead forever. There's a free gift. The free gift of God. I love that Paul in that verse, it says the free gift. Because he knew that we were wicked and we'd screw it up if he just said the gift of God. He had to remind us that it's a free gift. It's like a double gift. The wages of sin is death, but there's a free gift of God. You know what it is? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Through his death, through his burial, his resurrection, his victory over Satan, sin, and death. Because he's a better king. All of Samuel is pointing us to the better king, the better king, to the New Testament, to the gospel. It's why we should sing. It's why we can be excited about a heavenly father that we have a relationship with. Why? Because Jesus died so that I can. And some of us continue, even in church, here in Buckley, online, in Manistee, we continue to fall into the trap of believing a false gospel. That if I stand before God and my good, whatever that is, outweighs my bad, whatever that is, that he's got to accept me. I got news for you. He's God. He doesn't have to do anything. And he's a holy God. And Paul says, your greatest goodness is filthy compared to holy God. So if you're counting on the gospel of being a good person to somehow save you, you're in for a big surprise. Somebody had to die. And Jesus chose it. And that's the only way. That's why it says wages. You still trying to earn it? You still trying to pay God back? That's the gospel of being a good person. We do the same thing when, you know, we're so surprised when bad things happen in our lives. Jesus promised that there was going to be hard times. Jesus promised we'd be persecuted. He would promise that we'd have tribulation and we're so surprised. But God, I was faithful. I did all these good things. How can anything bad happen to me? Guess what? The bad thing that happened to you is you believed in a false gospel. You believed that you could earn wages. You can't earn wages with God. It's a free gift or nothing. Man, I'm excited. (laughs) It's a free gift or nothing. You see how it sneaks in? Well, isn't it true that if, you know, I follow God's way that he'll bless me? Yeah, but sometimes the blessing's not in this life. Sometimes the blessing's on the other side. You know what the blessing was for Peter? He got to write parts of the Bible and then he got to be beheaded. Do you know what the blessing was for Paul? He got to be beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, persecuted, beat up, write part of the Bible, plant a bunch of churches, and then be hung on a cross and set on fire to light Nero's garden. That's what he got. Great blessing. Don't be scared. This isn't all there is. This isn't all there is. And there's good news. There's King Jesus. So the bands are going to come, both here and in Manistee. And I wonder if you bow your heads with me. We say this every week. We invite people that don't know Christ. Or maybe people that have been buying into the false gospel of being a good person. Maybe to receive the free gift of Jesus Christ. He offers his grace and his forgiveness. He offers his death in place of ours. He offers his righteousness 
and takes our sin away. Chances are for many of us, we, we know this story. And maybe when we start talking about the fact that we've chosen sin, we're reminded of those secret places in our hearts where we haven't loved, where we haven't reconciled, where we haven't forgiven, where we've chosen the way of criticism and cynicism. This would be a great time to repent of sin and say, God, I'm sorry, would you take that? Give me your heart, give me your life, give me your love. Help me to choose like David, to choose righteousness. Maybe this is the perfect Father's Day for you to grieve over your sin. Even to grieve over your own death. And the death I'm talking about is when we hide our lives in Christ and we say, God, more of you, less of me. When we say yes to him and we say no to ourselves. Maybe for some of us, we don't want to face the consequences or the ripple effect of the sin patterns that we've chosen. It's never too late. It's never, ever too late. It's never too late to give it to God and choose a new direction. God in heaven, would you help us to be men and women and students that choose you? Men, women, and students that don't choose sin, but instead choose the path of righteousness to respond when we're shown to the way of Christ. God, I thank you for the gospel that is freedom, that is grace, that is something that we can never earn nor repay. God, I thank you for Jesus who makes this possible. I thank you that he is the one true king, the best king, the one who's worthy of our worship, the holy lamb of God that was slain for the sin of the world. Thank you for his sacrifice so that we could celebrate Father's Day with you, Father. And it's in your firstborn son's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.